and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, reaching you from Philadelphia, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hello. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Somerville, Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey. Last month, we wanted to talk about Jewish joy, or last time we recorded, we wanted to talk about Jewish joy because we needed it. And this time we're talking about a television show called Little Bird, which is available on PBS and on Crave in Canada. It's created by Jennifer Podemsky and Hannah Moscovich with the participation of Jerry Pedeswa as an executive producer. The series is about a First Nations woman who is adopted into a Jewish family during the 60s scoop as she attempts to reconnect with her birth family and heritage. All right, so just going to jump into the conversation here. This show is so beautiful and so bleak. <laughs> like I was watching it and I was like, Ooh, could use some Jewish joy right about now. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you guys feel about it? I think we should say for context, I watched the first four episodes, which is all that's available right now on PBS. But I think that, Zahava, you got to see more than that. Yeah, I've watched all six of the episodes in the miniseries because it was Canadian made. So up here in Toronto, I have access to the whole thing, but it only as we record this just made it to PBS and not all of it is available yet in the U.S. And what about you, Mimi? How much of it did you get to see? I watched the first three episodes. Okay. Mimi, you should give a little plot summary of basically like a few things that have happened and wherever you stop is kind of where we'll stop in terms of spoilers. So our main character is a woman named Esther Rosenblum, Beijing Little Bird. In the show, we get these two timelines. The first is when Beijing is, I think, five years old in the 60s in Saskatchewan. We see her with her three siblings, her mother and father on the reservation. And gosh, the first episode, you just know that something bad is going to happen because you see these beautiful moments and you see her. She keeps leaving the home go to the outhouse or to go out with her brother to do something. And you just, you know, something's going to happen. So it's in the first episode that we're sort of acquainted with the fear of cars coming by that might be police or somebody from Child Protective Services. And the mother, Patricia, you know, sort of every time a car comes by, she pulls her kids back into the house. Her older son, Leo, is off hunting with the father. There's a young child, maybe two or three, Dora, who's sick. Dora's sick. Beijing and her twin brother go out to play, and police plus child protective do scoop them up. I had never heard of the 60s scoop, that particular phrase, but that really was like the sense that you got. Like they were just wrong place at the wrong time, pulled into a car and never went back to their house. So there's the timeline of that going on and her mother then trying to get the kids back, her mother and father. And then the other timeline, I guess it's early 80s, 85. This is in Montreal. Beijing has been raised by a Jewish mother played, I thought, kind of hilariously by Lisa Edelstein. Yeah, not not her best work. <laughs> no, She terrible. really cannot do an Eastern European accent to save her no. life. I'll say that the episodes that you all haven't seen, I think 
the emotional content of her performance is actually quite good in the second half of the show, but I agree that she has not mastered the accent. So in the 80s, we see Esther is engaged to a Jewish man named David. There's an engagement party. A doctor, no less. <laughs> a doctor. It's very, it's kind of, um, I don't know, kind of schmaltzy, the, the, those scenes at the beginning, at least. And... David's parents, Esther's soon-to-be in-laws, are condescending to her face, but then she overhears his mother basically being incredibly rude, making a lot of insinuations about Esther. And we learn that maybe there are others in the Jewish community who have adopted uh, First Nations children, and there's just a lot of throwaway remarks about Esther's questionable lineage. And then she goes off to try to find that family. So she goes back to Saskatchewan, reconnects with a sister, with the social worker who was involved with taking them away from her parents. Again, all of this is interspersed with scenes from the 60s. The ones that were most heartbreaking for me as a mother were the scenes of the mother trying to get her children back. So I'll stop there. I've, I think I've rambled too much, Tamar. You asked for a summary and I gave No, that was good. I think the one missing element there is just that her adoptive mother in the Montreal Jewish community is a Holocaust survivor. And over the course of the show, very intentional parallels are made between the Jewish Holocaust experience and the First Nations experience of child removal. I'll say the 60s scoop, that's not a phrase I knew before moving to Canada. I don't know, Tamar, if you were familiar with it, It's, but I think it's it's a Canadian term for this period from the 60s to the 80s where there was a very systematic and aggressive policy of child removal from Indian reservations. And in general, a thing that we see is social workers rationalizing it by telling themselves that they're rescuing children from poverty. The this is a distinct but parallel form of assault on Indian culture from the Indian residential school story, which is sort of vaguely acknowledged in the show, but is a different and distinct thing. Yeah, I did know about the 60s scoop. This was kind of an excruciating watch for me. I mean, it's extremely well done, but I am the parent of a child who is adapted from foster care. And I've been a foster parent for many years. And I also am like deeply concerned and horrified by like, at its core, the way the foster system works. And that's like kind of putting aside indigenous culture and First Nations peoples completely. Like the idea of foster care is really ultimately like supposed to be this kid is really not safe where they are. And so we're going to bring them to somewhere safer. And what we know from the research is like foster homes are just significantly less safe for kids than um, their homes of origin in almost every case. Most of the reasons that kids are put into foster care in the United States is for what's classified as neglect. And in this show, it's really, you know, they use poverty. And that's really what neglect means most of the time is, you know, people are very poor. And so they're too poor to take care of their children. So the idea is just like, well, we'll put these kids in more affluent families and then they'll be fine. That's just like a deranged idea. And I say this as someone who's like completely invested in this system for good or for ill I will say that, like, since the moment that I have become a foster parent, I have gotten a check every month from the agency or from the state, over $600 to pay for 
the needs of my child every month. I appreciate that. It doesn't make like a huge difference in my life because of the level of income that we have. But the reality is that like almost every family who has a kid in foster care, $600 a month would be life-changing. And if you have multiple children, it's more, you know, it's $600 per child per month. And that's just like in my city and in my state, it's different in different places. But it's like real money. That money doesn't go to the families that are neglecting or in poverty. It, it goes to the, the foster families. And this show just like, <laughs> it really unveils and I think beautifully, but really upsettingly gets at some of the really deep traumas that are caused by these policies and the ways that like people really have to continue to unravel these things and deal with them forever. Like, it's just not something that goes away. Yeah, it's it's super upsetting. One of the first, I think, can't remember if it's the first or second episode, there's a moment where the mother hides the baby Dora in like a crawl space in their house because she doesn't want the baby to be taken by the social workers. And I just kept thinking about the Holocaust and like all of the children who were hiding in various homes around Eastern Europe. It sounds like maybe that parallel is going to be made more explicitly later on. But to me, they didn't need to make the parallel. Like I could see it right away. And it is heartrending because people I know who uh, lived through that kind of experience were so permanently scarred by the fact that they were torn from their families. Obviously, the Holocaust was a very specific event. But the thing of being torn from your family and never seeing them again is something that people throughout time have had to deal with. And we know <laughs> from science and from so many people's lived experiences that it's something that will affect you for the rest of your life. So yeah, this one hit quite literally close to home for me, I guess you could say. One thing that's interesting as the show goes on is that you, because Bejig Esther is one of four siblings, three of whom are taken from the family, and she's on a sort of quest to to find and connect with relatives. Over time, you see sort of different ways in which that very violent separation has affected them and the way that she and the other two siblings have sort of sublimated their sense of grief or loss in different ways. And they wind up occupying these sort of archetypes. And I think this is going to sound a little reductive because I want to say I think these are all very complex and extremely well-acted characters. But Esther Bejig becomes the overachiever, right? She's the she's top of her class in law school. The other siblings, I think, respectively, might be called she's the survivor, like does what she needs to make it. And one becomes sort of the partier who sublimates grief in substance use and immersive experiences. And and then the fourth sibling who was not removed and has obviously this continuous connection to family and history, like what it has done to the people left at home. And it's interesting as the show moves from trying to find the past to trying to integrate the past into the present, that there are no solutions here. Like there's no way to fix what has been done. I think the show is really beautifully made. I think it's really beautifully acted also. I think with the exception of Lisa Edelstein's accent, there is no false note here in performance that I ever picked out. I think especially all of the indigenous actors playing the First Nations characters. There's a lot of subtlety. The main character, Bejig, 
Esther, who is played by Darla Contois. I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, C-O-N-T-O-I-S. She's, I think, doing an incredible job and she does a lot with very subtle and silent facial expressions. There's a lot of people here that I've never seen before who I hope have extremely long futures in acting because this is there's some really incredible performances. One thing that struck me very early on is I don't think that visually there's this very obvious distinction made between past and present. I think sometimes you're watching things with flashbacks and, you know, the flashback moment, the historical moment is like gauzy or very different lighting. They're obviously very different places aesthetically, like inside the home of upper income people in Montreal versus on a reservation 25 years earlier. But at the same time, these are both equally real and present timelines. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish between something the show is showing us that Beijing doesn't remember versus what is a flashback of memory for her. But I think it's intentional. Like these things are supposed to be very heavily interwoven affecting each other, almost indistinguishable. This is something that the present very much carries the past with it. And I think it's really well done. Yeah, I agree. I found it in just the first episode, I was really unclear, like how much does Esther Beijing remember? Are these all flashbacks? Every once in a while, especially when she goes back to Saskatchewan, you see her walking and then there's like a flash of a memory of running through grass with her brother or something. I'm really excited to keep watching this show and I I'm very curious in some reviews that I've seen it's clear that Esther's adoptive mother Golda plays a bigger not plays a bigger role but like their connection doesn't stop when Beijing goes back to Saskatchewan to find her family and I'm really curious how this is going to play out again having watched only the first three episodes one thing I was struck by she goes back to Saskatchewan and is wearing her Star of David. I don't think anybody has said anything about that, but it's obviously intentional um, and interesting. Yeah, the the show does not have like the world's rosiest perception of Jews, but it also feels not mean and um, it feels honest. Like her experiences, one of the opening scenes of the show, or maybe the opening scene is her engagement party. You know, there's like, it's a Jewish engagement party. There's like some jokes in it, but it feels warm. And she seems comfortable and happy in that space and surrounded by people who love her, even though she does overhear her future mother-in-law saying some really nasty things. I was glad that it does show that it's not like just like never-ending nastiness that she has to deal with, that there are people who really like love her and see her as part of the community there. And there's also people who don't. And the fact that she's wearing a Star of Dated throughout, I think the show does a really good job of showing us how like her Jewish identity is important to her, even though it's not more important to her than this like total mystery that she has in terms of her own personal history and trying to kind of sort that out and make those connections. And in general, I think it's like beautiful and generous in terms of how it portrays Judaism, but also it's just like a generous way of portraying anyone's ability to connect with their own personal past. There's a lot of people who feel really disconnected from some part of their heritage for whatever reason. Being able to really go to it for connection and meaning can be a huge 
asset is like too technical of a word, but a huge source of comfort and joy in people's lives. And I really appreciate that the show is like taking that seriously. Also taking seriously that like not having it is a loss. And you'll continue to experience that loss even after you start to have it. The, the loss never goes away. One thing that struck me watching the show and also sort of there are moments later on where both Jewish ritual and the Ojibwe ritual appear in the same context. We learn that the family that she's from is Ojibwe. One thing that struck me is that both Jewishness and First Nations identity transcend some of the categories we use for identity in modern parlance. Like one of the frustrations in talking about Jewishness in American contexts where people mostly have Christian references for what religion is, is that Judaism is not just a religion and it's not neatly an ethnicity and it's not neatly a race and it's not neatly a nationality, but his elements of all of those things that there's I don't know how to say this in a way that doesn't sound appropriative, but I mean this in the biblical sense, like it's a tribal identity. In the same way, it happens to be, totally coincidentally, for work, I had a conversation this week about how to treat indigenous students in the context of a data set looking at racial composition of different school districts. The fact is that indigenous students don't check all the same boxes as other racial minority groups in terms of, well, really anything, right? It's a totally distinct historical and national character. And I was speaking to somebody at the National Indian Education Association who was like, well, Native isn't a race. It's a nationality and it's a sovereign entity, right? Like reservation land is sovereign land. It's a, it's a totally different thing, right? In the United States, there's federal government, there's state government, and there's tribal governments. And those are the three sovereign entities, you know? She was trying to reinforce for me that being from a tribal nation is not the same thing as being from a different racial group in the United States. And I feel like in the same way, Jewishness and First Nation status, which is the term used in Canada, both of them defy the boxes that we try to put people's identities into in modern North American life. And that in that way, there were like interesting ways they could be in dialogue with each other that just wouldn't be possible if somebody were trying to like connect their blackness to their First Nations identity or connect their Jewishness to their Latino-ness. Like they're overlapping, but they don't share all of those same dimensions. And I think actually there were commonalities that had not occurred to me before about these two different kinds of identities. We should say, I think the creator of the show has one Jewish parent and one Native parent. So while they're not coming from this specific personal experience, they are coming from that kind of identity duality. I think maybe you endorsed it. This is about people who discovered each other and they're identical? Yeah, it's about um, a set of triplets um, in New York who were born to a Jewish mother and all were adopted by three different families and didn't know that each other existed. They found each other as young adults and then found out that like they had been separated. <laughs> Spoiler. They had been separated basically intentionally so that some like experiments could be run to see basically like how did these three identical triplets end up if they were raised in three different kinds of families. It's very upsetting, a true story. And I was thinking a lot about it as I was watching this show because it's about a set of twins that are separated and 
it's not like explicitly stated as an experiment in the way that it is in Three Perfect Strangers, but it's more that it's just ultimately like we know better what these kids need, even though like there was no plan. It wasn't like these three kids are going to go to this specific place. It was like just not here is the plan. The Three Perfect Strangers also has to, or maybe it's called Three Identical Strangers. It's a Jewish foster agency that is doing all of this, and they are Jewish. It's just like a really, it's a complex piece of our history. I did really appreciate the way that it's like both paralleled and quite different from the 60s scoop and similar things that happened in the United States. I found myself thinking a lot about I'm a social worker by training and just thinking about like the violence of different bureaucratic systems too. I mean, Patricia, the birth mother, she's tortured by these rules that make no sense, by people's judgments of her that even as the social workers and the police officers are determining that it's an unfit place for the children to live, it's clear that they also, that they're just checking boxes. Like, there's no clean water. Well, actually, but there is water in the well over there. You just know that you can click this or check this box and get to the place where you want to get, which is take the kids. And you see there's a young social worker trainee. The character's name is Adele. It seems like maybe this is her first day on the job when they go to the Little Bird family. And... In the scenes from the 80s, you see her again. Interestingly, in the 60s, she's this like bright, young, you know, wide-eyed woman. And when they show her in the 80s, I felt like just everything was frazzled about her. She had this terrible perm and the color was all off and her makeup made her look kind of blue and ghostly. And I, I just was thinking about like, she has also been like chewed up and spit out by this system, just like Patricia, the mother, and just like the kids, just like every cog in that wheel, the police officers, the people running the, I think it's called like Dylan House, where all of these First Nations kids were taken. And there's an amazing scene at the end of episode three where you see Patricia just like primal screaming off a mountain into a valley. My mother heart was just like, I don't know what I would do, but it would look like that. Like it would feel like that. And Ellen Jade is incredible as Patricia Littlebird. I know I just keep like shouting out the performances, but really like the, the emotional reality of these scenes is really impressive. And I don't know if this is just my personal 21st century scatter, but I think I very often when I am watching something, I'm distracted. I'm often listening more than watching. I, you know, maybe I have my phone with me. Maybe I'm doing something else. Maybe I have the video up while I'm like washing dishes. And this is not a show to experience like that. Partly because the emotional magnitude of it is so real and partly because of the flashes intercutting the timelines, it's really important that you get the visuals 
even if nothing's being said, like if the character is having a wave of memory, or sometimes you have a situation like this where the mother is sort of screaming into the void, but the sound is dampened. It's really important to absorb this visually. I feel like this this is a very intense and very heavy viewing experience, and I think we're conveying that maybe more than we're selling the show, but I'm really glad I watched it. And it was not an eat your vegetables so that you know about an important social thing, social phenomenon kind of viewing experience. Like I think it was very moving and very powerful in in a good way, even if it wasn't leavened by much humor or lightness. At no point did I not, like, as I was watching it, I was like, this is tough, but I always wanted to watch the next episode. It's really excellent. The one thing I will say is the pacing is... Maybe because, I don't know if Canadian TV is different from what I'm used to and like my American appetite of shows, but it's slow, especially the first episode. It's ominous. The first episode is slow and ominous, which I think is intentional, but it does get moving after that. And the 80s fashion is fun. Yeah, I have to say, it is. it does make you think about how long ago the 80s really were at this point, like... This stuff is is old. There's like a car that everybody's like, wow, nice car. And I was like, that car is so old. (laughs) In a way, the 80s scenes feel more dated than the 60s scenes because when you're on the reservation in the 1960s scenes, it just feels sort of timeless. But the 80s scenes feel more like a direct period piece. And I think as you encounter more of the reservation in the 80s as the main character is exploring her roots, it feels very much the same in the 80s as the show presents it in the 60s. I'm always a little bit hesitant about things that might be sort of idealizing the, you know, the pure simplicity or the magic of Native life. And I was kind of on alert for that. I I don't think it happened here. I think I think the show is really good about that. But I think the one way in which it feels a tiny bit like that is the way it feels like no time has passed, like the, that reservation life is the same in, in 1967 as it is in 1985. I don't know, I, I assume that isn't true, but we don't get a window into the ways it's not true, other than the fact that by the 80s, everybody has a phone and running water. Yeah. Sounds like we all recommend this show, um, but it is not light and fluffy. It's definitely heavy, but beautiful. All right. Are we ready for endorsements? I have another chunk of endorsements. Mimi is feeling out of endorsements right now, which is totally fine. So Zahava, tell me what you have to endorse. So we have just talked about a very heavy and realistic show set on the Saskatchewan Prairie. I would like to offer an alternative if you'd like to experience a unique Saskatchewan community from a totally different perspective. Have either of you ever watched Little Mosque on the Prairie? No, I know. I don't think I knew that existed. Okay, another Canadian show set on the Saskatchewan Prairie. It is available. It's like six seasons long. It's several years old. I think it was, I, I don't have a year offhand, but it probably ran from like, I don't know, roughly like 2008 to 2014, something like that. But it is a show about a Muslim community on the Saskatchewan Prairie, it opens when they've just hired a new imam who's like a young polished upstart from the city and how he does with these prairie Muslims. And it is a half hour comedy 
It is a lot of fun. I personally felt a real kinship with Brianne, who's one of the main characters, who's like a young female hijab wearing, serious Muslim, also feminist muckraker in her community. It is a lot of fun. Some of the characters are a little broad, but it's a lot of fun. So Little Mosque on the Prairie, I think you can get it on, well, I don't know what's available in what country, but it is sometimes available on Amazon Prime, sometimes available on Disney+. Plus. Definitely a lot of fun. And just like small communities in unlikely places are always something that Jews can sign up for, I think. Yes, that sounds right up my alley. Okay, my endorsements are not fun, (laughs) but they are things that watching Little Bird kind of brought up for me. So it's a few things. The first is a book which I might have already endorsed called American Baby, A Mother, Child, and the Secret History of Adoption by Gabrielle Glazer. I read it last summer. It's really excellent. It's about a Jewish kid who was adopted and it just kind of goes really into a lot of the sadness and loss that um, is built into the adoption industry. A more academic but still incredibly excellent book that I highly recommend is called Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World by Dorothy Roberts. It's a tough read. It's so good. She's an incredible writer and she has really beautiful and thoughtful ideas. Uh, She's a professor at Penn who's really thought super deeply about adoption and foster care. I felt very called out by this book, but in a really good way. And I recommend it to anybody who's interested in any of this. And it's specifically about Black families, but she really touches a lot on all kinds of the policies around Indigenous kids and ways that foster care really also harms Indigenous families. I mentioned Three Perfect Strangers, which is a documentary, and I'm pretty sure that they're actually making a feature film about it. Looks like it's available to stream on Hulu right now if you have Hulu. And then the last thing and uh, my biggest endorsement of this is if you are at all interested in Native American life, indigenous life, this little bird is really excellent. But if you can only watch one or if you can't, like you can't do the like, pretty intense sit that Little Bird asks of you. Seek out Reservation Dogs. It's available on Hulu. It's just an incredible show. It's really funny. It's just beautifully acted. It's about a group of kids um, in Oklahoma on a reservation. Almost everyone on the show is played by a native actor, and all of the actors are incredible. It's both funny and incredibly thought-provoking and beautiful and interesting. And I just, I can't say enough good things about it. So if you haven't watched Reservation Dogs, there's no Jewish connection to it whatsoever. (laughs) But it is really, really excellent. And it's just a whole world that I really had never seen anything about. Nothing like this. So definitely check that out. And the last thing I'll say is like that show Reservation Dogs is produced by Taika Waititi, who is somebody with a indigenous and Jewish background. And a lot of his work is very clearly informed by both of his indigenous and Jewish background. And so if you're looking for something that will kind of bring those two things together, look for some interviews with him and some of his work because he touches on it pretty directly. That was a lot. (laughs) I'm always amazed at like, Tamar devotes a lot of time to being a prolific consumer of things. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just always amazed at the uh, the bandwidth you have for absorption, if that makes sense. 
You make me seem like so materialistic when I'm trying to just like <laughs> occupy my brain so I don't think about disasters. But then sometimes I do that by reading books about other disasters. So your mileage may vary. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a great episode. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you to Jordan Daniel Mills for editing our show. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, or you can leave a comment for us on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media on Facebook. You can also let us know what you would like us to talk about in a future episode. We're always interested in hearing from you. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media on jpmedia.co, which is a great way to support our show and make sure that we can keep bringing you new episodes. Thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you. Thank you, Zahava. Thank you both. We will see you soon.